thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith, and I have the flu. (laughs) I'm Kim Morrison. And and she has the flu. (laughs) And I'm Cindy O'Meara, and I'm healthy. And you are 100% fabulous. I am 100% fabulous. I just thought we'd get it out there because I think I sound sound quite nasal. (laughs) Don't you think? I think I sound a bit nasal on today's podcast, and I thought I'd explain why. (laughs) (laughs) So enough about me, less about me, more about you. What do you think about me? I think I'm fabulous. (laughs) Now, what do you think about me? (laughs) Stop. (laughs) So today we've got a really fun podcast. I think it's going to be really fun because it's right up my vegan alley. And it's all about a fabulous fellow who's going to be talking about the magic of the plant kingdom. You see, now, I understand the magic of the plant kingdom, but it's your meat eaters that I think are the worry. So we're going to have somebody who's going to be talking about amazing plants, the technology, the science behind them, the love behind them, the emotion behind them, and all the magic behind plants. And also, we're also going to be talking about how um, Kimmy's got something really exciting to be released. So we're going to welcome to Up For A Chat, Dr. Greg Clark. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome. It's a treat. We've got Dr. Greg Clark over from New Zealand. So you will pick up on the accent. Um, but it's a real treat because Greg and I go back a while. Um, we worked quite a long time ago for a, a natural skincare company in New Zealand, which is where I got to meet the extraordinarily talented man. Um, and I really, Greg, there's a lot of things about you, but what I'd love for you to share with the listeners is, first of all, your background. What made you wake up one day and go, I love plants? What made you do it? PhD in the biology of plants, and what do you do with them exactly? Well, I guess I've always been interested in plants. I guess from a, a young age, just planting seeds with my dad in the vegetable garden and acorns and things like that, and I, I, I always found it incredible that from a little acorn you could produce a, a huge oak tree. So it's always fascinated me just growing plants and growing different types of plants. The other side to it too is, is people always say, well, animals, those are the interesting things. They run around, they move, all these sort of things. But, but to me, I find plants extremely interesting because they don't do that. They have to sit in one spot their entire life and they have to face head on everything that comes at them. So whether it's a disease, whether it's a drought, whether it's any sort of stress, they're out there in the hot sun all day. So they're producing all these things to allow them to survive in that one spot their entire life. So that really fascinated me. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Because they can't run and they can't hide. No. So everything they... How they protect themselves has got to be right there in the now. So, And I bet most of our listeners would not know that a plant protects itself or that a plant has a hormonal system or a communication system uh, because, you know, I've been listening to you for the last couple of days and I'm just fascinated with what plants are capable of doing. And, and look, I understood there were essential oils that came out of them, but tell us, uh, 
Yeah, the, the the details that we would have no idea about with plants, which is everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so we've all seen Avatar, no doubt. Yeah. Yes. And we've all seen that there's that, they talk about that intricate network that runs underneath the ground as to how the trees communicate with each other. Mm. Is that true? They do. So plants do have a symbiotic relationship with various fungi and bacteria in the ground. And what it can do is it can connect up the root system across vast, Differences up to kilometres, where up. each plant will be interconnected by a fungal hyphae, and there's communication by that way. Um, not chatting. How, what do you mean? Not chatting, but not like up for a chat. So often, what happens is a plant will release certain things into its from its root system into the soil to attract these microbes to it and to to accelerate the establishment of these networks, um, and then it's effectively you get an extension of the root zone which connects all these plants, plants together. But it's interesting because a plant is fully interacting with its environment. So it's it's picking up on the cues um, in the environment and it responds to those cues, so various threats and those sort of things. And just an example that I always use, if you have a... This is how it protects itself against sun and those sort of things. If you have a house plant and it's inside, it gets all dusty and you think, geez, it, it's... We've got to dust it, but you can't be bothered. So you wait till it rains and you put it outside and then it rains. So the, the dust gets all washed away. But if you forget about it and then the sun comes out, within half an hour or so, those leaves will just get burnt. Yet that same plant growing outside will not have burnt leaves. So the plant in response to the sunlight, the one that's been growing outside all the time, is producing something. It's interacting with the sunlight, protecting itself, putting some UV protective on there, some carotenoid compound that's protecting itself from UV. Inside, without that UV stimulus, it's not producing that. So it's just interesting how the plant actually picks up on its environment. Another example would be under insect attack. If if you've got a, a crop of plants or in a forest situation, if an insect comes in and it starts nibbling away at the plant, the plant that's getting eaten at that point where it's starting to get nibbled on, it's sensing that and it's sending out a response. First, there'll be a a release of, of volatile compounds, and one thing that that does is it's it's part of a hormonal system that sets off a response within the plant that starts the production of um, anti-feeding um, or deterrent compounds to the insects, so it can upset their gut or it can taste terrible. But the other thing that's been happening with these volatiles is that the plant is letting out these gaseous compounds they're being perceived by the plants around it. So that plant is effectively signalling or talking to its neighbours, saying, this is what's happening to me. You'd better ramp up your system because this bug's coming your way. <laughs> so, unbelievably amazing. It is. It just, um, it just blew me away that this, this mm. is actually happening. Just back to the house plant. So he's got outside... Do we say he or she? Yeah. And he got, yeah, so they it got burnt. It could be a he, it could be a she, it yes. could be both. Yes. So oh. that it, it got burnt, but it can adapt. Can so it? what happens? Yeah, it can. So usually, like us, if you get sunburn, the bit of sunburn skin is, is damaged. So you look at new cells to replace those ones. Um, often with a, with a plant, the leaf itself will die and the new leaf that grows will um, interact with the level of light and it'll protect itself to the right right level. So It's amazing. Um, it is amazing. We could probably learn a lot about our humanness by 
studying yeah. the plants by yeah. what you're saying. You know, you know that they adapt. You know that they adapt um, inside and outside. And we live inside and we have skin that's not protected. Mm. And so when we do go out, we get burnt. But if you have a look at, like, uh, the indigenous people around the world, they've always been able to adapt to that sun. It's just Mm. that now we live inside. I I love this. I just love what I, I, you know, what I'm I'm learning. Can we go to, um, and this may be jumping, but we can jump backwards and forwards. Can we go to... The chemicals that are sprayed on our plants, how the plants, and even looking at genetically modified Mm -hmm. plants, and what that does, you know, to the plant, to the soil, to the uptake of nutrients, what happens, like, just as we spray ourselves with chemicals and we don't work as well, what happens to plants? Wouldn't Wouldn't that weaken the plant's ability? Like, if it's covered in chemicals and it doesn't need to fight to protect itself would that, it's, would that uh, so it, it depends what's being sprayed on um i mean i know of instances where some some of the pesticides or herbicides that are used as well if, if particularly in a crop situation where you've got you're targeting weeds but also the the crop itself may respond to in some way to the herbicide or the pesticide and what you make is a, a phytotoxic response so a plant plant damage um, in response to that, um, whatever the chemical is. Now, um, that in itself sets off a whole stress response in the plant. So you get um, a hormone system around jasmonic acids and the salicylic acids and cytokines within the plants that are responding to that. So maybe suppressing growth because they're under stress at this stage or it can trigger other things. Um, but um, a lot of the time, it's a negative impact on the plant. And you can, interestingly enough, I'm, I've seen in some instances where they've applied things like foliar fertilisers that are seaweed-based to actually help the plant recover. So you use a, a, a tonic from another plant, you spray it on it, and it allows the plant to cope or it reduces that level of toxicity from the other, the other um, harmful chemicals that have been used. So it's interesting that you said seaweed. So that's an ocean plant helping a, a, land. a land plant. Mm. And that and that would work better than any other plant? Is that what? It seems to. Um, it seems, seaweeds are, are awesome things. They seem to be loaded with, with various minerals that the plant needs. I mean, they're relatively easy to harvest and, and produce these foliar fertilisers as well. But, um, I mean, they seem to function very, very well, and the, the plant seems to be, most plants seem to be able to absorb or take it up through their leaves. Normally you think of a fertiliser going into the soil, but a lot of these ones are foliar fertilisers just applied to the leaf, so getting direct to where the phytotoxicity is, has occurred in the plant. So. And when we consume these plants with their hormones, their cytokines, their phytotoxins, when we consume them, they must be causing us damage if if the plants are like sending them off as an inflammatory response would i be am i right in saying that surely they would be causing inflammatory responses and the reason why i'm asking this question is that you know most of human um, disease is an inflammation of some sort and we seem to have more and more in today's society than we've ever had before and I'm wondering if it could be the plants that are sick that are making us sick or the plants that are inflamed that are making us inflamed. Or perhaps even the soil is, is so... Um, toxic. So toxic. Mm. 
Tell us about that because you, you raised something before um, where you said that the, the plants will send out signals mm. through their root system to attract certain um, microbes or what have you to help mm. them fight whatever's going on. And that's a good point because, I mean, often, often what we're trying to control on the plant, so either it's a bacterial infection or some sort of fungi, those sort of things which are actually um, damaging to the plant, the type of chemistry that we use or the chemicals that are used to control that on the plant actually impact on the biology of the soil. Yeah. And as I said before, the bi biology of the soil is so important for the plant, for its root system, for its communication with its neighbours, um, for the way it, it gets nutrients out of the soil. Often it's the bacteria at the surface of the root system or the fungi there that are involved in the breakdown of the, of the um, organic matter in the soil and part of the transport into the plant. So when you start, if you go into a situation where you're using high levels of pesticides and herbicides and those sort of things, you are upsetting that balance quite a bit. And therefore, I think the, the nutritional value of the plant goes down. Wow. Um, but, but also, as Jacindy, you're saying that it's not just the nutritional value that there's a concern then. There's potentially toxicity in the plant that then also has a negative mm. effect on the body. So we think we're eating spinach, getting all of the iron, for argument's sake. Um, but in fact, it's not available nutritionally because it didn't actually develop that during its growth phase. But also, there's a toxin in that that it's extracted from or the soil. Or inflammation there. markers. So there's yeah. inflammatory markers. And I kind of liken the soil How and the that? microbes to our gut and the microbes mm. in our gut. Mm. And um, we're, destroy we're destroying both. One, we're destroying it with antibiotics in the body and one, we're destroying it with herbicides and pesticides and things like that. So uh, this is what I love is that I I've learnt so much from you in the last mm. couple of days in speaking with you in in that plants, we can learn a lot from the plants. Yeah. And and with your knowledge of that, I you know, I just I just I just love it. Can you tell the story <laughs> about the black currants? Oh jeez. Well, that's not all out yet. Oh, it's not not out yet. No, I'm thinking about the horse. The horse. Yeah, yeah. So we'll do the horse first, and then we can do you. Yes, the black currant. No, not well. Yeah, I was going to say now who's now who's turned into the tart. Really? No, it's just talking about experiments on himself. Oh, is that what? That's what I was talking about. Is that what you call it now? Experiments on ourselves. <laughs> I see. No, it's just, it's just I, I did a, a work for a company once um, and they they um, sell blackcurrants. And um, we were interested to see because blackcurrants, all these fruits that are, are richly pigmented, like the berry fruits that have the strong, rich blue or red, vibrant colours, it's usually associated with a, a particular group of, of compounds called anthocyanins. So they're strong pigments, but they, in our bodies, they're recognised to be uh, strong, have strong antioxidant properties, which is great. But I was doing some investigation into an, anthocyanins to look, well, what else could they could could do or, or do in the body or, or human physiology or mammalian physiology. Um, a friend of mine, his brother-in-law, had been feeding his horses um, black currants, and they'd been going away and doing three-day competitions, so quite intense show jumping, um, cross-course eventing and dressage, all those sort of things. Very, very rigorous sort of a workout for a horse. And he noticed that the horses that were getting the black currants, it was almost like they hadn't 
gone and done these three days events. They seem to be less fatigued or, or not even fatigued at all. So that, that interested us to, to think, well, what, beyond an antioxidant um, property, what could these black currants be doing? And I did a, a lot of reading through the literature, and that's where I tend to go. I like to look to see what's been done from a scientific perspective and what's out and published. So I, I, go, I go into the journals and have a look. And um, the thing with anthocyanins, there's been quite a lot of work done looking at... Um, how they impact on the vascular system or the cardiovascular system, and it's called a vasodilation response, where they they open up the capillaries and you seem to get, once you've consumed black currants or or the anthocyanins and and the red berries and those sort of things, you get this opening up of your capillaries and you get a, it's almost like a resistance to the, or a a drop in the resistance of, of blood flow through the system so that more oxygenated blood seems to get to your extremities. So if you're suffering from poor circulation, I mean, a dose of, of black currants around the sinus just opens up those channels and gets the blood moving. So I had a, um, I'm also into breeding horses, race horses, <laughs> and I, um, I got a mare from a stud. They gave, them, gave her to me because um, they tried for about five or six years to get her in foal and they couldn't. So she produced two, two foals while she was younger, but they effectively believed that she'd become infertile. So I thought, well, I'm, I did, once again, you do a bit of reading, what causes horses to go infertile? And um, I found that often one of the causes could be a reduced blood flow to the ovaries and the uterus and those those sort of things. So I thought, well, hey, I wonder if feeding, <laughs> feeding the horse up on black currants is going to do anything to it. So about, I decided that I'd breed from this mare and that the... the the people that had her at the stud thought I was um, stupid to try, but I thought, well, I'll feed her up in the black currant. So for two months before I sent her away to a stallion, I fed her up every day on a handful of black currants. And um, lo and behold, first pop, she got in foal. So um, we've got a wow. beautiful two-year-old She's right here. So Did the next thing the following year. Boom, we've got another foal just on the ground now. So... Um, I strongly believe anthocyanins, if you've got circulation issues with, um, with, with blood issues around circulation, even if you've got diabetes and those sort of things and reduced blood flow and that sort of stuff, then I think a healthy dose, dose of black currants or anthocyanin-based um, powders or, or berry fruit is going to help you. But let's, oh let's talk about anthocyanin by itself as opposed to wrapped up in the berry or wrapped up in the currant. So what's your belief that can we extract that anthocyanin out and give that to people or do you think that it's the, you know, the synchronicity of the plant that is actually doing the, the trick? So I think what we've done is we've also, um, because obviously the juice of a lot of berry berries including black currant is is quite valuable in drinks and those sort of things so what you end up having left is the skin and all the the other tissue of the berry left of the currant and um, that's often where a lot of the vitamins the anthocyanins and all the health benefits of the berry are at not necessarily in the juice the juice is full of sugar but the actual um, tissue of the currant and those sort of things is really really um, potent in terms of its its um, 
its um, health benefits. So one of the processes that you can do, I mean, you can extract extract things in various ways, but, I mean, black carrots just simply freeze-dried down, so you're not adding a solvent, you're not doing anything there, and you're simply powdering the whole lot. That seems to be effective. Mm. So it's still in its... Um, its, whole it's all it has is taken the juice out of it, it and it's still in its whole form. And yep. Yeah, I, I just find that absolutely fascinating. So I'm, strong, I'm a strong believer in the synergistic behaviour of the whole organ. So the it whole stands to reason, doesn't it? I mean, if there was any benefit in us having the juice, mm-hmm. then it would have been created that way. Yep. So it stands to reason that the whole thing's created for the holistic and synergistic mm-hmm. value to itself and to its consumer. There's a new book out, it came out the end of February, and it's called Vitamania, and it talks about how we have become obsessed with single nutrients and how Mm. these single nutrients are made, you know, because they they soon figure out how they can make curcumin and not use turmeric, or they'll soon find out how to make anthocyanin. Is that how I say it? I know that's an antinoxidant, and I always see it written, and I never know how to say it. Mm-hmm. But they'll, you know, they'll soon figure out how to make that from the petrochemical industry. Mm-hmm. So I'm always, you know, I always make sure people realise that it's the food that is is creating this, as well as that that one compound, because there will be other antioxidants within that oh, plant completely. as well. Yeah, yeah, even though I say anti anthocyanins, it's loaded with other things as well. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, people usually assume that the bright colour of berries is simply associated with attracting some sort of dispersant, whether it be a bird or a some sort of creature that eats the berry, then goes away and deposits the seed somewhere oh, yeah. else. But, and that's, that's one part of it, but I think the reason why these, because if that was the case, all you'd need was just a rich colour and uh, the reward of having the juice in there. But I think what happens is because plants and animals have evolved alongside each other, one of the things that the um, plant, the animal that's feeding on that berry gets is a good nutrient source as well. So that by the plant putting in all these value, valuable nutrients into that um, berry, the 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 bird or the whatever that's feeding on that is getting the nutrition out of it. So by default, that's getting a decent feed that's getting it alive so it can breed and produce more offspring that then come and help out the, the plant again and, and mm. keep going. So there's benefit in having those rich little nutrient um, Great. berries. We, um, we worked together a long time ago in New Zealand, and one of my favourite stories that you told and taught me was all about how Australia and New Zealand were once part of Gondwana land and how over the years we separated. Can you just explain the story behind why New Zealand has no predators and how much the plant kingdom affected it as opposed to somewhere like Australia that everything can eat you, bite you, sting you, burn you and kill you? Mm. Um, I love you say it's Jurassic Park. (laughs) (laughs) Including the grass. A thing here called nutgrass actually yeah. ate my pool, I'm just saying. Ate <laughs> your pool? Yes. Your swimming pool? Yes. What do you think I said? No, I, I thought that's what you said. But <laughs> um, I could not see the logic in that. It came up through the pool. Oh, it did. It, it, ate, the... The gra- it ate the pool, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> wow. They warned me of it. They it said, is. nutgrass is dangerous and right. it will get in your pool. And I said, what grass can grow through three layers of heavy-duty plastic? 
and this mother did within six weeks. Mm-hmm. Oh my! Mm. Right. Okay, so, please explain. Well, I guess the uh, the thing about New Zealand is um, it's isolation. I mean, we, we tend to think in the southern hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, we're all at the bottom of the world. We're relatively immune from the rest of the world. But New Zealand, when it split off from Australia, it was or well, the land masses separated. Um, <laughs> The um, <laughs> I don't like to think we split off from Australia. But, um, so there was Antarctica, there was India as well, was part of it. South South America as well. We're all part of this big Gondwanic landmass. Now, when it all started to break up, when New Zealand found itself by itself, um, no land mammals were actually on New Zealand. So, and all the other big land masses throughout the world, um, there are land mammals. So the evolutionary path has meant that in other um, lands that the plants have evolved along with the, the, the mammals. So in New Zealand, we didn't have this scenario happen. We had um, a um, wealth of um, birds, so different types of birds, and they effectively evolved to, in relationship with the plants um, to form uh, the roles that mammals form in other birds. So we have the, the the likes of the kiwi, that's like no other bird in the world type scenario, but it's the equivalent of a rat or something that goes round on the forest floor picking up um, uh, various small um, invertebrates and things. Um, we have a, a lot of flightless birds. Um, we've got, I think, the only flightless parrot in the world, the kakapo. So it's rare that when you look at flightless birds that you have a parrot that's a flightless bird. Um, we had flightless ducks, flightless geese, all those sort of things. We had huge moa, which uh, related to the um, the emu and the ostrich and those sort of things, the ratite birds, um, and they effectively formed the, the browsing animals like a deer would be in the forest. But it's it's interesting because wow. a lot of the plants and things in New Zealand haven't got these um, defence mechanisms that you get or the, the toxins that are associated with keeping mammals away. So a lot of plants have... Um, produce toxins that are anti-mammal, so they, they deter mammal grazing. In New Zealand, they, they don't really have that. So when the possum from Australia was introduced to New Zealand, it's had the possum from Australia. I have no idea why that was done. I think it was for That fur. was to make fur, fur G-strings that sell in a lot of souvenir shops, I'm just saying. Oh, for real? And nipple yeah. warmers, say no more. Yeah. Are you allowed to eat possum in New Zealand? Because you're not allowed They're to eat pest. possum in Australia, you can, you except can, in Burnie Island. You can effectively do what you want with them because mm. they are oh. that big a pest. They're actually destroying the native bush, <gasps> and it's terrible because you'll see huge tracks of native bush that are just dying because they're being munched on by possums. But um, let's see, that's it. The, the plants in New Zealand haven't evolved along the likes yeah. of, of possums and those sort of things, so they're... They haven't got the type of leaf or they're not producing the toxins that um, deter, deter or, or reduce the level of grazing. So, Do plants have feelings? If you rip a carrot out of the ground or if you rip a corn off the... You, like if, do they... Do they She's never going to eat vegetables. I never will, actually. It's the last time I've had a pee. That's it. I wouldn't say they have feelings the way we do have they, feelings, but, but they, 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 can respond, they can respond to stress and they can inform their neighbours that something not very nice is happening to them. 
So this is where you get the release of these volatiles. Oh, or no, no, no. <laughs> particular hormones or volatile hormones like um, ethylene that informs the neighbour that something nasty is happening to me. So and depending on the type of volatile that's being uh, released as well, it could be a signal of, of what exactly is happening to it. So, so while a, a, an animal is squealing... The plants are releasing ethylene. It's about the same thing, I'd say, wouldn't you, Kim? Mm. Oh, it just seems savage to me. So when it's like grape season at the winery and they go picking the grapes, like yes, I would that's... have thought that would have been a joyous and magical occasion. <laughs> see, that's probably not too bad because the, the plants are geared up to disperse their oh, seeds true. and the fruit. They want that to happen. They want the fruit to be harvested. Taken away, they want the seeds to be dispersed, so that's fine. But it's when you collect a broccoli or something and then you put it into a pot of hot water. No, tell me what happens then. I'll release ethylene, and that's telling everybody they're in. They're squealing. They're like putting crayfish into a boiling pot of hot water. But but they cut the broccoli off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh oh, she's gone. There's no more veggies. You can have fruit. But you never can have vegetables again after this discussion. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? devastating to me. What about a cabbage and a cauliflower? Same, or a carrot. I mean, you can take it, if you think they're all dead, take your carrot out of your (coughs) fridge and plant it again and get your carrot going. So Mm. they're just sitting there. They're amazing. Can we um, talk about hybridisation? Yep. So Mendelssohn, let's... Can we start back at Mendelssohn? You can start back at Mendelssohn. Is that when yep. you think the first thing started? Can you tell us who Mendelssohn was and what hybridisation so was about? So he was a monk. Jeez, this is going way back 20-odd <laughs> years in my studies, but I guess simplistically, because that's all I really know it as well, is, is Mendel <laughs> is considered to be the father of genetics, I guess, because he, he was able to show that um, traits were heritable. And you could actually predict. Um, and he did a lot of his work with um, peas, I think it was, and either different coloured peas or, or different... Um, uh, the seed coat of the pea was either rough or smooth and that sort of thing. And he could show that by crossing one particular coloured pea with another coloured pea. The colour transfer may skip a generation, but then in the following generation that he could breed back and he would have various colour patterns based on what the two grandparents were. So in that way, he, I guess, is the father of hereditary to show that you cross one thing with another thing, you can actually predict um, what's going to happen. So And it, he, he linked the transfer of um, traits from one generation to the next generation and show that through plant breeding, you could select various characteristics and get them in generations further down the track. And that was back, what, 1800 and... Oh, can you remember? Was about, <laughs> I, can't I can't remember. remember. It was early though. It was like the 18, maybe 60s or something like that. I can't remember exactly yeah, either. Was, yeah, but was, that was the beginning of man manipulating, or do you think man was manipulating the breeding of... Oh, um, I think that they'd been doing it for years and years and years, millennia before then. They just didn't realise that the about genes and the linkage of traits. Mm. So they were always just naturally, if... Um, when we, I guess, we moved from this hunter-gatherer sort of scenario into um, settled-down communities and with this farming sort of scenario, 
we were always selecting the plants that survived a drought or the plants that grew better under whatever soil types, those sort of things. So that's when we would have started to select these things. So really there are no probably, you know, there's this whole paleo diet. Really there's probably not many paleo plants around anymore because there would have been selective breeding throughout. Perhaps Australia, I think about Australia, you know, we have a lot of native plants that are being lost because of farming, but there are people that are stopping the farming and getting rid of the cattle and getting these native plants back. So, you know, we're, we're getting the probably very, very old plants that were around. But one of the things that I've, I would like to talk to you about is this hybridisation of all of our foods, but especially wheat. So wheat's been hybridised. The hybridisation has been linked to um, problems in our health. What do you believe about the hybridisation of the wheat grain back in the 70s and 80s? What do you believe about that and it causing the amount of gluten intolerances that we have today? So if you go right back, because what you can do now with some of the genetic tools that we've got is we can see where a gene actually came from in a, in a particular species. With wheat, it's likely that the first hybridisation was a natural one that occurred in the wild humans weren't involved whatsoever. So it was two species living relatively close together, relatively closely related as well, and they naturally hybridised. And then it was probably a, a second hybridisation that occurred under cultivi- cultivation, human influence, that then brought about the, the true wheat that we know it today. Um, so I don't think hybridisation is necessarily the... the uh, evil thing here. I mean, what happens is it's when you start to select for particular traits. And the thing is, when um, if you're focusing on one trait, unless you're selecting for a suite of other traits, you tend to naturally select against it. Unless the selection pressure is there to keep that trait going, it's not necessarily going to keep coming through in the next generation. So um, when you start to look at something like gluten and you want to breed up high gluten concentration grains, then you start selecting for gluten. A lot of the other nutrition may go um, from that because you're only, you're only wanting the, the properties that gluten brings to what you want to do now, which is is basically bread. bread. Make great bread. Make bread. Mm. Make bread. So. And it goes back to what we were saying originally in that you need the whole fruit or you need the whole seed rather than just selecting pieces of it. Well, in order for it not to become disruptive. So you're saying that the wheat then, so people then wanted to feed a hungry planet, there was probably a noble cause maybe around that, that bread, we were talking about it yesterday, that you just don't see the the African nations now showing so much starvation and things mm. like that. So have we solved it on one level? So, and that's probably it. We've solved it on one level, but then we've introduced a whole lot of others because I guess back around from the 40s through the 60s was what's been coined the Green Revolution. So what happened was there was... and it, Before we talk about the Green Revolution, why was it called the Green Revolution? Because <laughs> it needed a name. <laughs> so it wasn't green, honest, was it? It wasn't red. It wasn't green. It wasn't red. <laughs> it wasn't red no. because it was. And it wasn't, it wasn't actually... It was something that started to occur, and I guess this is like no one sat down to have a green resolution, and the green has come because it's... It's, um, it was agricultural based mm-hmm. as opposed to communism, which is the red or the, 
the other sort of thing. So um, they call it this green revolution because of the whole agricultural side to it. Um, that's my understanding. Mm-hmm. I can be corrected on that. Um, but what happened was the, it was one particular guy, I forget his name, but um, you may know Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug. He had lived a life where he was exposed to a lot of the famine and those sort of things. So his idea was, well, how can we produce these crops that are actually going to feed these people? So he sort of looked, I guess, at... Um, why a lot of crops failed and um, how we could make them more productive. So there were a couple of things involved. It was, uh, there was a a major um, breeding effort to make the uh, straw that holds up uh, wheat or the straw that holds up rice rice stronger. So they dwarfed it. So they used genetics from other related species um, across, say, wheat or rice and they looked at well, what have we got in that whole gene pool here that we can use to produce these high-yielding, stronger plants. And one of the other issues was, particularly with wheat, is that with wheat seed, naturally the uh, wheat grains shatter from the plant and they disperse like that. So that if you're going to harvest them, you don't want to pick it and then it just all falls out on the ground. So one of the things or traits that was selected for was wheat that actually retains its seed or the seed doesn't shatter off. So you could then go through and you could harvest it with a mechanised harvesting system and the seed wouldn't be left on the ground. You could collect and those sort of things. So one of the other things was to have a very short but strong straw. And the reason for that was you could then, because part of it, the genetics of the plant was one side of it, the other side was then you could bomb these things with fertilizer um, and they would only grow still so high but you'd get very good um, production of, of grains and those sort of things and the and only growing that high if they grew this high they would fall over once again you couldn't harvest them so they'd only grow so high um, and they'd retain the seed and then you could harvest them but what that meant was there was a heck of amount of fertilizers going into the environment and a lot of um, with the other side of it as well, you then have to control weeds and pests and all those sort of things. So more and more pests and and herbicides are being used. And over time, you're starting to select these varieties that have herbicide resistance or pesticide resistance. And more recent times, and what you're seeing through the through America now is that most of the the large grain grain crops are engineered. Um, to be herbicide and pesticide resistant. So you can actually use more and more of them. Your crop is more resistant to them. It won't get the ill or the phytotox that we talked about earlier. Um, But it means that you've got more of this going into the environment. And with the early um, genetically engineered stuff, it was around these, um, these resistance to chemical herbicides and things and so what happened was the communities around were often getting more exposed to these chemicals and I mean it's the same through Asia and Africa where these um, these plants that were bred up through the Green Revolution have been released, there's just been um, more fertilisers used more um, and what happens is you're producing plants that are really taking the nutrition out of the ground because these are high productive units now so 
the soil in that can, can't cope with them effectively. We used to get good small plots of land where the, the owner of the land was able to manage it and feed his family and, and they'd share and feed in the communities and those sort of things. What happened now was that you had these highly productive um, plants that were sucking the nutrition out of the soil. You had to bomb it with other fertilizers and those sort of things. You were bringing in irrigation as well because these things need a lot of water. So then that has a, a downside as well where you start to increase the salinity of the soil. So effectively you're taking big chunks of land out of the productive system. So... Um, it just has a huge knock-on effect, doesn't it? It does. So you tamper with one thing and then you affect a whole lot of other things. And then we've not only affected the plants and the environment and the water systems and everything like that, but then when we consume it, we've really affected our the human body. When you look at the sickness um, in our children, I was just um, writing a foreword for um, a new uh, school lunch book and actually written by um, Pete, Pete Evans, and... I thought, well, I'm just going to look at the statistics and, you know, 40%. This was back in 2003 and 2004, and I couldn't find more modern statistics. But 10 years ago, 41% of our children under the age of 15 had lifelong illnesses. Mm. The growth between 2009 and 2012, which is only three years of autism, jumped, I think it was 15%. So that's in three years. It's jumped 15%. Mm. So, like, I, I, I don't know. I just I listen to you and I and you're you know you're in the plant world. Mm. Why aren't other people in the plant world getting this? Why aren't or is there a revolution happening? I think that I think there is a revolution um, happening now. What colours this one? Where yeah, green, red, <laughs> white's they, gone. <laughs> but you can have the new, the new green. <laughs> and I and I think I know I know a lot of people are anti um, biotechnology and those sort of things, but. Um, there is a movement now, and, and one of it, as you sort of alluded it to before, that we have lost a lot of the native plants, but not only native plants, if you think of all our crop species and those sort of things, because of the breeding programs, we've lost a lot of the genetics that were associated with the wild-type species. So those that were the ancestors of these things, they've sort of been discarded, they've been replaced. Mm. Now what's happened, and the Green Revolution was a prime example. I mean, you you were able to feed the masses, but one of the things I think that was left out when they selected the traits to have in those plants um, that they were breeding up was a lot of the nutrition in the in the grain. So while you had people that weren't now starving to death, there was malnutrition associated with it um, because the, the, the these plants had high yields, but they didn't necessarily have the high nutrition nutritional content that they had in the wild type. Um, and you know what um, most people don't know because it's been happening since about the 60s and 70s and maybe even before is that they now fortify all our flour with B vitamins as well as in Australia they must fortify it with folic acid mm. and now our bread must be fortified with iodine. So most people don't even realise that every bit of flour that they buy now has yeah. been fortified with folic acid and B vitamins in Australia especially and in America it's the B vitamins. How are these B vitamins being made? They're not from the plant. They're usually mm. made like B1 is from acetone, you know. So it's this is the, the you know this is the thing well, is that we're not even eating food. No, we're not. We're mm. we're we're actually putting in fortifications that are synthetic vitamins 
so that we can eat these junk foods that are being planted by these big multinationals. And, you know, there, there's, a real, there's a real push to go back to the farms like Joel Salatin's farms, you know, where you've got um, so many things happening on the farm and it's not just a monoculture. Mm. Can we um, perhaps move away from... Actually, can I ask you one more question about the wheat? Is it all right? I'm, I'm being a little bit of a... Hog? Hog, yes. <laughs> no, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> no, love can, it. Can, like, you do not believe that uh, it's the hybridisation that has probably caused the gluten intolerances we have in Australia or in the world at the moment. What, mm. what do you believe that it is? Well, I, th- I think there's, there's probably always been, and it, it's not necessarily gluten, but we all have... Um, some issues around some sort of food. There's a lot of different allergies around there, and some of us are particularly um, have an allergy towards gluten. Now, um, part of that is um, that we seem to be getting more exposed to gluten-containing foods now. And the thing, too, is that foods that may not have contained gluten in the past because of the wheat varieties that we're using now, have high levels of gluten in them. So in the past where if you may have been gluten intolerant, the odd bit of gluten every now and then may have given you an upset tummy. You may not have even known it was associated with gluten because you weren't eating that regularly. Um, But now it's hard to avoid gluten, even just from a daily basis if you're eating out or even... Um, what you're finding in your house as well. A lot of things actually uh, contain gluten, and it's not necessarily just in bread. It's in coatings, it's in flavourings, it's in shampoos. Yeah, so we we are just overloaded with this stuff. And, I mean, at some point your body, and this this is beyond the, the poor people that are truly gluten intolerant, but at some stage our bodies can get sensitised to these things, and it's just from overexposure to them over a, a large time period, then our body sort of has a bit of a memory and it says enough is enough and it starts reacting to that. Um, and it may take months or years to actually come back to being able to, to take something like, like and is that, again. And is that because what you were saying before was that the wheat was chosen, obviously bread was the staple, so therefore they chose a high glutinous grain to keep producing, which means every, even though we mere mortals think wheat is wheat, each wheat or different wheats had higher levels of certain things in it, so the ones with the most gluten would be the best one to produce, given bread is a staple for nearly every single family on the planet. Is yeah. that also the, causing I, the sensitization? Yeah, I guess it's, we live in a fast food world, these days, everything is fast. Um, and that's the same with the crops now. When they select crops and you look at those ginormous grain fields that they have in Australia, some parts mm. of New Zealand and in the United States as well, they are massive. Um, but it's there, they want to produce one particular thing and the quality of that grain um, for bread making is the gluten content. So you select for high gluten levels in there so that you're mass-producing it and bread has become a fast food staple now. You just look at the McDonald's, everything. You get buns that have got... We were saying it yesterday, Everywhere you look, there's bread served with everything. So people have moved away from making their own bread at home and in the 
old days, 200 years or so, we would be growing or you'd get wheat or barley or whatever grown in your local community from seeds that have been passed down from generation to generation. Suddenly it was, well, we need to mass-produce bread. What does bread need for the um, mechanisation of it through factories and those sort of things? Just the production system, it's got to be high gluten if we want it to rise like this, we want it to absorb water, we want it to do this. And what about then, what do you think then about spelt? Or einkorn. What do you think then about the older grains? So I mean, I, th- I think that's, yep. And I mean, a lot of people can probably use those as opposed to the wheats that we have now, which are, which have these real high concentrations of gluten. But it's it's interesting because the I hope, and I think there is a, a movement to get some of these older genetics. And I don't mean bring them and cross them back with our current wheats and those sort of things, but keep them as varieties themselves that we can start producing. Yes. Um, and, I mean, what, what we've got to do is not go down this whole Green Revolution track thing where we look at, well, how can we turn that into something that's mass-produced and forget about the nutritional aspects of it because we know that there are, are things that our, our, our systems can't tolerate um, and... We're not geared up to um, have some things daily in our diets. Mm. Once a week or every so often is fine. We can cope with that sort of thing. But when you start to go down and your diet is made up of five sort of things and you're constantly overloading with them, your body responds to it. Well, people are also becoming um, sensitive to histamines in plants, the nightshades, the salicylates. What is happening there? What, you know, like salicylates vary in different types of plants, as, as do nightshades. Some, you know, plants don't have it. What's happening there? Like, are the plants producing these greater because they're stressed? Or I think what happens is plants that are, have higher levels of these things because they, um, you want to produce plants that. Um, Require less care. They're better adapted to surviving in the in the environment that you're trying to grow them in. So, just through the selection pressure of, as I mentioned before, you select something that's better adapted or going to survive better. Better. So, um, by default, you're selecting a lot of these things as well, which are a stress response in the plants. But you're accumulating them in the plant to make it easier to grow. If you bomb it with so forth, that's going to be stressful or Everything's getting drier these days. If you can't irrigate, or if you do irrigate, you get this build-up of salinity in the soil, so you need the plant to be able to cope with that. So you're selecting these genotypes um, that carry these traits to be able to do that. And a lot of it could be some of those compounds that you're talking about. So we may be having higher levels of those in our diets just from the plants that are being selected um, for mass production. Wow. This is just disheartening. So, okay, so here's a, a question that's burning for me then, in that my diet is 100% plant-based. And <clears throat> I don't think that really matters necessarily whether a person's plant-based or not, because I think well, she is sick. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just questioning and she's not well. I'm just... <laughs> this, is true. this is true. But... So what's the answer for a person? Because I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I'm just going to have to get myself this, you know, 
the big garden. Kick butt garden, <laughs> and I've just been outside coughing my heart out, looking at Kimmy's um, pea vegetable patch out there, thinking, okay, so I'm going to have to get myself this big kick butt garden and do it all myself and look after it all myself. But even now, what you're saying is the seeds that I would buy, or the seedlings that I would buy. Even those have been, and forgive what I'm about to say, but even those have been bastardized to the extent that mm. I risk inflammation from the food. And I want, you know, and I wonder why mm. I still feel inflamed, even though I eat a plant-based diet. Mm. This could be it. Well, I, I, th- I think probably one of the bigger issues is the residues and things that you'll be encountering on the plant. Um, so it's the pesticides and the herbicides that are just there on the plant. I think. Yep, the types of plants that get selected, I mean, they're not, the nutritional aspect is often overlooked, so it's to get the plant to to grow better for the guy that's harvesting it, so we can store it better, so we can make better dough or whatever. So there are aspects of that around the nutrition of the plant. And it's Um, all all about yield, isn't it? It Rather than nutrition. Exactly. It's all about yield. It's about yield. And there are there are diggers. Diggers is a, a place that you can go to, and they have traditional seeds and seedlings. Yeah. Well, I think seeds. So you actually can mm. find people who do traditional plants. In Namble, just near us, we have a lady that has all traditional herbs. She just go up there and just grab some herbs because herbs mm. are also. And this is. Do you the want to talk about herbs? I th- well, I, th- I think when it comes, to if you're a vegetarian or vegan or. or that's what you choose to do. I think it comes down to variation as well. Not just have four or five or six. And probably vegetarians are probably better than anybody else at doing this, having the variety in their diet. Because um, I'm not a vegetarian. <laughs> I don't think I could ever be a vegetarian. But, but, I, but, I, don't, but I don't think it but, matters. I think the, the fact is, like even paleo, you're still having a large amount of vegetables yeah. and greens and beautiful. Exactly. And veg, it, you know, like it doesn't really matter. I think yeah. that the, the same effect is potential there for everybody mm. if the but, plants that we're buying are affected by yeah I, I would I would yeah, I would be cautious about that um, I, I don't think inherently plants organically produce plants and those sort of things I think they're they're, they're good for you yeah. um, I, I would be more concerned about how things are processed um, yes. and what's done in the manufacturing can we I, can we change course a little bit Um, You now work in the kiwi fruit industry. The kiwi fruit industry in New Zealand was nearly obliterated a little while ago. What what is your thoughts around um, your job? Explain your job and what you do now in order to protect industries like that and and what you see as the future possibilities of, like, Australia's not, like, the mangoes in Queensland – Warnups down in Victoria. Like, seriously, how do we... Oh, my gosh, Cindy, your dog. <laughs> We're all just looking at We're each just... other and I'm thinking, who's going to say something? Oh, <laughs> Obi is just licking away there. He's a little bit thirsty. Oh, oh <laughs> this is hard. What dog? Yeah. <laughs> what dog? It was Karen. <laughs> oh, that's just nasty. I will get you back for that. That was nasty. All right, go on. Uh, Sorry. So, with, 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 so what, what happened... Um, this is globally worldwide. Kiwi fruit came under the attack of a particular pathogen, which is a, um, a, a, a Pseudomonas bacteria. Now, traditional ways of of dealing with bacteria is the is and 
fungi, but bacteria, is, is to use things like copper. So you put a lot of copper onto the plant and, and the bacteria doesn't like copper, so you try to take the bacteria out that way. But um, one of the things we learnt through dealing with this disease in kiwi fruit is that um, the bacteria will always get in to the vine. It's, it's a systemic disease. It gets in by the leaf or through wound sites or those sort of things. It's just like a human. So, it's just like a human. So we can't put copper in the plant. So we thought, well, how do we actually um, protect the plant from this scenario? And we, we're doing a lot of work now looking at um, the microbiology of the soil, the microbiology on the plant, so just what normally inhabits the plant itself. Because one of the things is, can we get the environment itself, so the environment of the plant and the environment that the plant lives in, to actually fight off this bacteria because it's effectively a foreign bacteria into the system. And the other angle we took, so we're doing a lot of work in that, looking at beneficial microbes um, that are there within the plant. There are a lot of um, bacteria and, and fungi and things that live within plants, um, endophytes, and they're beneficial to the plant. They're there for some reason. They can be associated with things from uh, pest resistance through to drought tolerance and those sort of things. Um, so we've been trying to see well, how do we encourage that good biology within the plant and on the soil. The other thing too is we were looking at do these plants have their own immune system suppressed somehow? So can we actually... Um, people used to talk about um, the health of the plant. My plant won't get it because I'm organic. My plants are therefore healthy. Um, and that's great. But a lot of the organic people, their plants suffer just as bad. Mm. The way I, I like to look at it, it's not so much healthiness. It's more fitness. Is the plant fit? to fight off this particular bacteria? Has it got its immune system functioning to fight off this thing? And it's the same with humans. I mean, a healthy human and a fit human may be two different things, depending on what the scenario is. If all the food dried up tomorrow, the fit, skinny, healthy people that are running around, they won't last too long. But those that are a bit more robust probably will survive a bit longer. So it depends what the stress is what makes something fit for the situation. So with the vines here, we were looking at, well, how do we, how can we help the vine? What is it that's depressed in the vine um, to help it fight off um, this disease? And so we looked, and it's interesting, one of the, the key hormones that's associated with bacterial resistance is a, a hormone or plant hormone called salicylic acid. So we've done things to try and boost the plant's own system to fight the disease itself. So we're encouraging the plant to produce things like salicylic acid. Now, it's interesting that, and this goes back to the whole essential oils and how we use these secondary metabolites. Salicylic acid is a secondary metabolite. How we use these in our own daily lives. So salicylic acid is... Um, aspirin. Aspirin. Aspirin, yeah. So it's beneficial for the plant. <laughs> and humans and, and our physiological system that has anti-stress properties as well, anti-inflammatory properties as well. So we have evolved alongside plants, plants doing this thing to protect themselves, and a lot of those compounds working at the cellular level in a plant will also be beneficial to us as well. As we when ingest you go them back or down live to around the, them? Or both. Yeah, ingest them and, and use them on your skin and those sort of things. This is why I love essential oils. Oh, no. oh. So with salicylic acid, 
BSL acylate. Ah, uh, now I'm not too sure about the, yeah, I, the I, chemistry I mean, of the salicylates. Yeah. yeah, we must look that up and, yeah. and give our listeners um, what that is, because all of a sudden you're saying salicylic acid increases its immune system. And do you know that there's a paediatrician on the Gold Coast who, when a child has a gut issue where they cannot even tolerate their mother's milk and they have to go on a medical feed, they say do not eat organic foods, only eat foods that are conventionally grown because the organic foods are higher in the salicylates than the conventional ones. Which makes me think what you're saying is that you're trying to strengthen the immune system. Maybe our organic foods have a stronger immune system, therefore higher salicylates, and that's why the conventional is what they can tolerate. Wow. I have been trying to figure that out. Why would wow. that be? It makes sense, doesn't it? Well, it does. It actually makes so much sense. Thank you for that. Here's, what's that. What does Google say? What's the difference between salicylic acid? So while you're talking, while you're finding out about that, because believe it or not, we've actually come to the we should be at the end of our time. So no, we've got to do mushrooms yet. I know, I know. Do we keep going? <laughs> can, can we just do mushrooms just as I think it's really important? Okay, we'll ask about your mushrooms, then I want to finish on my question. Well, no, you finish on your question. No, mine's more interesting. Okay. Oh, you're funny. <laughs> just briefly. I'm maybe we could mushrooms. Maybe we could talk about mushrooms next time yeah, you're in Australia. Magic. Yeah, cool. Um, but just briefly, um, the power of mushrooms. So I think, well, yeah, it's... Fungi in general. Um, I think, like plants, um, there are compounds in fungi that are beneficial to us. Um, and often we, we eat, we've evolved to eat these things if they haven't killed us. The ones that have survived keep eating them. So fungi are like that, and there's a lot of good compounds with it in fungi. Some of them, there's been a lot of research done looking at how they affect our physiologically, our own hormone balance and those sort of things, particularly... Um, magic some ones? Magic, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Not yes, the hallucinogenic ones and all sorts, yeah. So there are a lot of bioactive compounds in fungi as well, and they have lots of different physiological roles. So some of the um, areas that I'm quite interested in is being in my mid-40s now, as you start to notice your, your body, how it... It's not necessarily that it's ageing, it's that it seems to take you twice as long to do things that you normally would have been able to do or maintain a level of fitness that you're happy with. You have to work so that. <laughs> so I've been trying to understand, well, why is that? Is it simply that biologically we've reached a certain age or, or what is it that's, that's behind that? And then you look, and because I'm fascinated with the hormonal system and plants, I was doing a bit of research to say, well, well, is there any tie-in between the hormonal system and, and ourselves and this ageing process? Um, because that hormonal system is really a chemical communication that goes systemic throughout your body, and you have ratios of different hormones there that are all synergistically working together um, to give you what you are effectively, your, your health and, and, and your well-being. And... Um, I was interested in saying, well, is there a relationship between ageing um, and what's happening with our hormonal system? Um, and in, in men, it's it's clear that all the evidence shows that I think past 20, the levels of testosterone start to drop off. So I thought, well, 
then you do a bit more research and say, well, what exactly, apart from the obvious, um, does testosterone do in the male body? And it's all sorts of things like muscle tone, uh, skin tone as well, all those sort of things. And so instead of looking to see, well, let's just inject some more testosterone, what is it that's starting to fail or just slow down that's actually producing that testosterone? Or that, why is the hormonal system slowly getting tired or slowing down? And can you actually ramp it up again or reinvigorate it? Um, so effectively, as we were doing with the plants, get your own system to do the work again. And so it's interesting. So I look through what exactly some of the bioactive that could be involved in this, and some of them seem to be, there seems to be quite a bit of work around um, certain types of mushroom. Um, so I was quite interested to, to get hold of some different types of mushrooms and then and then just put myself on a, on a diet of, of these mushrooms and, and see what the effects were on I feel younger today than I did three years ago. <laughs> we, we will, and that's all we'll we, we will definitely, because by the time you probably come back, you will have done probably some more mm. experiments with this. Mm. And I think every male will be listening to it. Cool. I, I would like say it. every male will listen to it. I would like, I like my like son it. on those mushrooms <laughs> instead of mass nutrition, protein supplements. Well, that's the beauty as well, because it's not... It's not you don't load yourself up with protein. You're not. I didn't change my diet at all, but um, he just took magic mushrooms. Being on this, <laughs> <laughs> this mushroom, and I, I look. I, I took a holistic approach. I thought the mushrooms were going to be part of it, but I wanted, if you're taking the good nutrients out of the mushroom, how do you get that better through your body? And this is the likes of using things like your anthocyanins or your black currants, which help you get it to your extremities and all those sort of things. And this is where I was talking about my mare before, who uh, effectively was infertile, according to the stud. But we fed her up, or I fed her up in these anthocyanins, and we, we managed to get her in fold. We didn't measure had we increased the blood flow to her uterus, but she was a different horse being on the, mm. the black currants and the anthocyanins. So, um, I wonder if I women listening, to, I wonder if oh. men and women listening to this that are struggling with fertility, um, maybe if their reason without knowing is the blood flow, it could Look, be it, one area. You it, could can't it, it, hurt. Hurt. it can't no, help. It can't no. hurt. It can't hurt. So, yeah. but not dr- not go and drink Ribena. No, no, no. no Rabin hasn't no, got it. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> just making eat, a disclaimer. No, yeah. 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 Eat whole black currants. Yeah. Eat yeah. Whole, eat whole, whole, whole black currants and blueberries, yeah. wherever the yeah, exactly. is. Yeah, exactly. A good know? berry diet, yeah. So, so one of the things I'd just love you to explain, when we walked through the kauri forests in New Zealand together and then we were on the beaches holding the seaweed and looking at things like kumaraho in New Zealand, which was like the gum digger's soap and realising it had its own self-lathering properties, which was right by the kauri trees, which produced this amazing gum resin that was really sticky. The soap itself, the, the, the gum digger's soap, the kumaraho, we used it in the rivers when we mm. were there together, washing mm. our hands and... Mm. Um, one thing I just would love you to explain, because I know we've got a lot of Kiwi followers, is the whole thing around giganticism and why the cowrie tree grew just so straight up and down and why it's used in our timber um, building of houses and why it's such a beautiful wood. Mm-hmm. And, and do you know much about the Australian differences or is there just a little something you can give us around both Australia and New Zealand? I mean, I was fascinated with the giganticism story, mm-hmm. so... Well, I think Australia's got its own um, gigantic things. And, yeah, tell me about it. Um, 
it's I mean, but even even even, <laughs> even the plant world, I think it's got the tallest tree or yes. one of the, the eucalypts. Yes, um, um, and it's also got. I think and the largest palm, I think, is here. And is it the largest palm? Someone was telling me about. You know how we have the um, the silver fern, which is quite a low growing. They've got actually the tall. I was with some plant lover there not long ago, telling me that Australia has the tallest palm, palm tree. Oh yeah. wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think also there's another unique thing where, um, as we were talking about um, the connection of the root system earlier on with plants, I think it's either the oldest living plant association or it's the most extensive uh, single genotype is also in Australia and it's a single it's a single plant that has reproduced vegetatively for I think it's thousands of oh, years wow. so I'll have, I'll have to look that up but yeah. it, it, I remember it was well, fascinating, let them have something that fascinating. Was yeah or, or you can google it as well and have a look it's, it's amazing but the thing is when in New Zealand as I said before it was predator free so effectively a lot of plants um in the environment there, it's really lush. Um, if you've ever been to New Zealand, it has a lot of rain. So things, In ping and tremble. things grow. <laughs> <laughs> things grow very well there. Um, and it's a relatively mild climate as well, not too extreme, well, depending on where you are. But it's, it's a very lush climate. Um, and that particular family of trees the, um, the, the carry belong to is a Gondwana species. You'll find them in Fiji. You've got a Queensland carry mm. as well. Um, and up through um, Southeast Asia as well, you'll find the carries and the podocarps as well. Um, but in New Zealand, and it's very good in climate, it's ideal for them. And the trees, they live for thousands of years old, but they get absolutely ginormous. And the, the beauty of the carry tree is with other trees, I mean, the giant sequoias and, and those sort of things, they taper. If the taller they get, they taper. But with the carry, and you can Google and have a look at carry trees they are just one big column of timber that doesn't taper mm. and they are absolutely huge and they the biggest one alive now is ginormous Tony Mahuta but they believe that the largest one ever measured was two times the size of the circumference of, of Tony Mahuta so an absolutely ginormous tree that would have dwarfed any giant sequoia and, and those sort of we had those photos of us hugging that tree, remember mm. we're up there. And I just, there's something about the forest. They're very different here in Australia compared to New Zealand. The smell, the minute I hit New Zealand shores, mm. I just get the smell of New Zealand. I, I get the same thing here in Australia. They're very unique. Um, one, just one final question I'd like to ask is, do plants release, is it is it a pheromone that they release the way we release or is it like, is the essential oil They have their own that? signature, yeah. So it's, it's like... Call them volatiles if you like. So that they are producing a particular gases that will be almost like a fingerprint for that plant. So you could effectively train a dog to sniff out a particular type of plant if you wanted, based on what the um, essences or, or volatiles that are being released from that plant. Yeah. So is it the volatiles that make essential oils? So, so yeah, the the essential oils are, are volatile compounds as well. So it's the gas the gases that are coming off it. So, They're yeah. your beautiful essential oils. I know. And the exciting thing that Greg and I are working on together at the moment, Greg is officially on the twenty eight board of directors. Just saying, you've got your doctor, I've got mine, <laughs> <laughs> and you're happy. Yes. <laughs> 
but I mean I could listen to Greg forever and I mm. love the way he explains things and and the way he um, his love of plants just the three of us Greg have a real love of nature and love being in nature um, but I think what you bring to it is just the magic of the unspoken mm. world of the plant kingdom which gives us a whole I mean I think we could I would so love you when you come back again to to talk about what we're doing with the extensive range with cool. 28 yeah, I'd love to but um but is there any any take home that you could recommend to our listeners as far as how do you get more green in your life? I don't mean the wacky wacky. Um, <laughs> or the green revolution. <laughs> <laughs> or the green revolution. What would you suggest in order for us to respect, be in harmony with, honour? Like, if you had a message for everybody. What, what I'm encouraging, I've got two little children, and what, and they absolutely love this, is... Have your own garden. If yeah. you've got an opportunity, have your own garden. If you've got outside space, start doing it. So you, you start to learn what it takes to produce a plant, mm-hmm. the nutrients that are required, the water. the Because it's not a simple process, and you nurture them and you bring them through to producing the fruit or the, the vegetable or whatever. Kids love that, and you get a buzz out of it, and there's nothing, nothing better than being able to eat what you've produced yourself. And if you haven't got space outside... Do a little herb garden inside or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh, you're amazing. We love you. I've just got, you know, Dr. Steve Myers, when he was on, I kind of like sat there thinking, oh, my God. And now I'm doing the same thing with you. Just, mm. oh, I just yeah. love your passion for it and, and your research. The, the mm. stuff that you do is phenomenal. So thank you for being yeah, here. Thank you. Thank you, no thank you so thank much. You. Yeah, it's been good. I feel like I've found something else to explore. I yeah. know. Yeah. It feels so fascinating. So thank you very, very much cool, for sharing no your time with us. Can't wait to have you back. Cool. And no doubt today's podcast is going to generate a whole world of questions. <laughs> I mean, as soon as I go home, I know I'm going to start to like make a list of all of the things that I want to know. So for everybody who's listening to the podcast, go to our Facebook page at all the w's.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat and post your questions there and we'll make sure that we get them through to Dr. Greg Clark. And also you can go to all the w's.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat and you can post your comments there as well. So thank you so much for joining us here on this week's podcast and we're going to look so forward to seeing you next week at the same time, same station where you get to be part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. We're going to see you on the ride. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.